Hi, I'm Justin Rosso, and welcome to this episode of the Next Step Podcast, where we help you take a next step. This is our eighth and final episode in season five. We've been dealing with the book, Come Holy Spirit, a daily discipleship travelogue for Easter to Pentecost. On day 38, there's a scripture experiment where I invite you to reread the Pentecost account in Acts chapter two. And to help us do that, I've invited my friend and author and lecturer in New Testament at the London School of Theology, Conrad Gempf, to join us for a conversation. Which is a good thing because Conrad knows way more about the book of Acts than we do. You might want to grab your Bible and have it open to Acts chapter 2. We'll begin with a brief overview of the story of Acts so far, and then we'll look at some of the key verses in this text. I learned a lot in the conversation today, and I hope you do too. Thank you so much for being with us for this Next Step podcast. I so much enjoy taking a next step following Jesus with you. Now let's hear from Conrad. Conrad Gumpf, welcome back to the Next Step podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's good to be with you. And you're still in the outskirts of London, are you? I am indeed. I'm in rainy Northwood. And uh, what's going on in the world of rainy Northwood these days? Well, uh, this is, Northwood is also where my the college that I teach at is located, London School of Theology. And um, we're discussing reopening and mm-hmm. and being together again as a community in the flesh, which is interesting. In the UK, um, about 90% of the adults will have been vaccinated, at least with the first vaccination, by July or August. So we're looking to plan a graduation ceremony and a get-together. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since you've been in the classroom. Yeah, I've been teaching via Zoom uh, with people in little individual windows. <laughs> so it'll be nice to be incarnate again. Yes, good, good. Uh, a good time for it. After Easter leading up to Pentecost, being incarnate is a good, it's a good time to be incarnate. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us today. Now, I think if I've got the story right, were you not on the New International Version Translation Committee for the Book of Acts? Is that correct? I was an advisor to the committee for the Book of Acts, yes, um, many years ago now. Excellent. Well, so we're kind of getting it right from the horse's mouth or, or something like that. Uh, so thanks for joining us today as we look at Acts chapter 2. Hey, this is Acts 2 we're at. We're, this is the, the Pentecost story. And as we unpack that, I just thought we'd take a half a step back and, and maybe look at what's happened so far in, in chapter 1 or even the, the book of Acts as a whole. Could, could you give us a little intro before we dive into the text? Yeah. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are, are being pretty much typical disciples. Um, they watch Jesus go up into the sky and the angels have to come and remind them that they've got work to do. <laughs> Why are you looking up? Um, and they've been asking about whether this is the time that Jesus is going to take over Israel. And so they're still, they're still thinking typical disciple thoughts. And, and, and the book of Acts really is about how they've had to in the course of the book of Acts, reorient themselves to what's really going on. And and frighteningly for them, that history continues, that, <laughs> that Jesus' second coming, as far as they were concerned, his resurrection from the dead, wasn't the second coming we're looking for in the future still. So so they've got some uh, figuring out to do, some some living yet to do. Yes, and, the, and they don't really understand their job Um Hmm. It becomes 
pretty clear from from the way the book progresses. These are people who are going to turn the world upside down, but almost by mistake. <laughs> so I we're used to calling this the Acts of the Disciples. Uh, sometimes I've heard it called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Where, where would you weigh in on that? I think the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles working by the Spirit is <laughs> a <laughs> It is a title. Um, Luke does this crazy thing where he, um, at the beginning of his gospel, he has this introduction where he's talking to a person who's probably his patron, probably paid the expense for the book and so on, Theophilus. Yeah, I think Theophilus was the uh, the first next step patron, actually. That's that's, that's good. It's a good uh, tidbit of info. <laughs> that's great. And he, Luke takes up that uh, dedication at the beginning of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do before he was taken up into heaven. And the implication by saying the previous book was about what Jesus began to do, the implication certainly is that this is what he continues to do hmm. through, his, through his disciples and via the Spirit. So that long title might be a title, but another title that I've heard for it that I really love is uh, a quotation from much, much later in the book. And so we came to Rome, I think would be a good title for the book of Acts, because it's really about that sweep of geography and a sort of sweep of sociology as well, from being a very Jewish thing in Jerusalem, and before that in Galilee, it goes, it progresses to Galilee, to Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And that's how we got to the center of the empire. Hmm. Hmm. So you could look at the book of Acts in that geographical sweep, or as a continuation of the works of Jesus, and now Jesus is no longer physically present, but he's present by the power of the Spirit. Uh, in a little bit, we'll get to the verse where it says, where, where Peter actually says, Jesus, this this Christ whom you crucified and God raised, this Lord and Christ is the one who has poured out what you now see and hear. So Peter seems to attribute the Pentecost event not just to the Spirit, but to the action of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, before we look at the broader context of Acts, let's let's go to Acts 2 then and uh, just begin to un unpack this text a little bit. You know, there's some of these things that seem to me like typical, like you think of the Pente day of Pentecost and these things are typical. And some things, when you read them in Acts chapter 2 in your actual Bible and the actual words are there, you're like, I don't remember that from the Sunday school. It's just kind of interesting to unpack uh, those things too. But Acts 2, chapter 1 says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. A and not by accident, right? I mean, Pentecost was Pentecost before, well, before Pentecost, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. That's, it's an odd thing. It, it took me a while to get my head around when I was studying Acts for the first time that um, Pentecost is a Jewish holiday before it's a Christian holiday. Yeah. Um, and it is, a, it is one of the pilgrim feasts. So it's not by accident that um, that they're together celebrating. Um, and also it's not an accident that all these strangers from foreign countries are there. It's a, it's a pilgrim holiday. You expect that to happen. So there are people from, from every nation on earth, it says in the text, which I think relates to 
the disciples not really understanding their task at first. Hmm. I wonder if they've heard Jesus say that they're supposed to go to make disciples of all nations. And now here are people, Jews from every nation on their doorstep. I wonder if some of them might have thought they could tick that box off now. They've spoken to people from every nation. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so these are, as you say, Jews, and I think the text says converts to Judaism. So th these are people who have come to Jerusalem because they want to worship Yahweh. Did, now, do you do you know? Did did they stay over from Pentecost, uh, from Passover, or is this like a separate? You have made a separate trip, or like you picked one of these? How how do do we know how that worked? We don't really know how it works. We can guess that folks that come from very far away might well have stayed for a long time. Hmm. Um, Passover was the really big one. So it's likely that if they were going to just one or the other, it would have been to Passover. But then again, you know, maybe it was inconvenient for one reason or another to come to Passover and they came to Pentecost. But I think it's safe to assume that these people from so far away have probably been to Passover and now are at the end of their sort of holiday at Pentecost. So they may have even been there for the events of Passover and, and this uh, Jewish teacher that Maybe some of these people were in the crowd or at least knew of the crowd on Good Friday. It's very possible that they were around. And if so, that they would be even more struck by the yeah. fact that Jesus that rose from the dead. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And if I remember correctly, Pentecost is also the a harvest festival, a bringing in of the first fruits of, of harvest, which, uh, of course, for me and, and listening to Jesus talk about things like, look, lift up your eyes and see the fields are harp ripe for harvest. It's a wonderful kind of imagery of bringing in uh, these outsiders. In Jewish tradition, it also gets connected with the giving of the law and the blessings that the law gave to the Jews. And so it's also an appropriate holiday for what happens now in the giving of a new covenant in a, in a new way. Yeah, so the giving of the law, its origin is in, in God. God gives the law and establishes a covenant relationship. Now we have God giving the Spirit and establishing a new covenant relationship. Is that how you kind of run that parallel? Yes, and also the law is, becomes written on their hearts mm -hmm. now or lives in their hearts in the Spirit. The Spirit will tell you the sorts of things to do, that, and there's no law against that in, in Paul. It strikes me... I think in my conversation with uh, Dr. Lois Malcolm, in reading her book about the Holy Spirit as well, it struck me that the 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 age of the new age, the new creation age, is also the age of the Spirit. So there's a lot of talk in the Old Testament, like you just said. I I will write the law in your hearts, and that's a that's a Spirit moment. I will I will. Peter talks about it. I will pour out my spirit and your sons will prophesy and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will see visions and your young men will dream dreams. And the new, the establishment of this new victorious age is marked by the coming of the spirit. So this is kind of a second coming. Jesus, the second coming began with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's the firstborn of the new creation. It's almost like the coming of the Spirit also is an inauguration of the second coming, this new new creation. Is Am I reading that right? Yes, I think so. And it's it's brought in by Jesus, the first fruits of this. But it for me, it's all about a new intimacy with God. Mm. 
But I think the gift of tongues is all about, in the, the biblical gift of tongues, is also about this ability to commune and converse with God apart from our fallen capabilities. And the, and the Spirit, that's a sign of what is going on in this new age. Oh, I hate using that phrase. Yeah, yeah. What's come to you. <laughs> but, yeah, we don't mean new age the way you think we mean new age. We mean the, the coming of the kingdom of God age. They've swiped it from us rather than us using theirs. Right. right. Um, but yes, things are different now. And so uh, I remember talking to a group of people who wanted to film uh, to film a Pentecost, a, dr a dramatization of Pentecost. And one of the things that um, that the camera guy was really excited about was to be able to film this house and this crowd of people. And in the background, down the street, in the distance, is the Jerusalem temple where you'd think the intimacy with God's stuff was happening, but it's now no longer happening there. It's happening here in an ordinary street at an ordinary house with ordinary people, even foreigners. Yeah. And, and Galileans. Yeah. So, so now we've kind of can progressed in the text. Uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. I think that might, might fit in, in the Come Holy Spirit book, what we've been talking about as this rhythm uh, kind of paradigm yes. that, that every year they would have gathered at Pentecost, just like every year they would have gathered at, at uh, uh, Passover. So this is a regular part of their routine, the rhythm of, of following Jesus. And then you get the the wind, the sound of the blowing of a violent wind filling the house. You get the the uh, the tongues of fire that separated and rested on each of them. And then you have the the being filled up with the Holy Spirit, and that filling with the Spirit seems to overflow into being enabled to speak in other tongues the way the Spirit uh, w was enabling them. So what's going on with the wind and with the tongues of fire and then with this, the technical term is glossalia, being able to speak in different tongues. What, what's going on with that, Conrad? It's very dramatic, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and, and it will be throughout Acts. And frankly, these guys need something really dramatic uh -huh. before, they, before they realize there's something going on. Um, and it's kind of hilarious. I never really thought about it before until you were describing it. You, you sort of inspired the, the idea that, that they were asking Jesus, are you at this time going to come back and change everything? And, and Jesus is very patient with them and says, it's, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But just a few days later, <laughs> the Spirit does come and change everything, hmm. not the way that they expect but God is with them in a powerful way now, in a way that they don't expect. The wind, of course, probably many people know this, the word for wind, breath, and spirit are all the same word. And so the sound of a wind blowing is, and, and the fact of a wind blowing is often used as an image of how the spirit of God moves over the face of the water, or mm. Jesus talking to Nicodemus will talk about, the, you know, so it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. You hear the wind and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Yeah. Um, so wind is instantly making Jews and people of Jewish tradition, these converts to Judaism, think about the spirit being there. The tongues of fire relate to the giving of the law. Again, probably um, 
when the law was given, when the first covenant was given, when the first agreement where God's saying, I'm going to be with you and you're going to be my people, it's on a mountain and there's huge fire on the mountain indicating the presence of God, fire and smoke, and everybody's frightened and wants mm -hmm. to stay away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now every single believer is a mountain which God is touching and coming down and talking to. And these believers have these tongues of fire resting on them, probably to, to indicate God's presence with these guys. And it's an unexpected, it's an unexpected presence. Uh, and, and that was the beauty of this cameraman's idea of the temple in the distance. Yeah, yeah. We expect it to be up there, but you know what? That temple curtain has been torn and there's now no longer a separation. There's now no longer a place that God lives there and not anywhere else, which already God had indicated to the Jews wasn't the way that it was. You could pray to him anywhere, but now his presence is everywhere and with believers and resting on them and living in them and poured out into them. Yeah, that's that's such a beautiful image. The the Sinai, the 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 very presence of the glory of God, fire on the mountain, and uh, we get the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. It's kind of the glory cloud, the the presence of of Yahweh, and and it strikes me that both the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud are very Lutheran pillars because it's very clear that that God is not the fire. And yet God is somehow present in, with, and under the fire. You know, like it's, he, he, the, God is actually present in that fire. It's not just a, a sim, symbol of, of the fire, of God's presence. And so now like you get, instead of, and, and, and like you say, it was when, when the fire came down, the pillar of fire came down over the tabernacle, Moses went in to talk with God and he came out with his face shining like the sun, almost a transfiguration moment too. But when, and then when the pillar of cloud or fire went up, the people knew to break tent, you know, tear down the tents and, and move forward. So this is, wow, what a beautiful image of these individual disciples becoming tabernacles, becoming temples of the Holy Spirit where the very presence of God dwells for the benefit of the people around them. That's an amazing image. Well, not, not in the first instance. This is really curious. In the first instance, it's not for the benefit of the people around them. The first thing that happens is not evangelism. Hmm. These guys are given the ability to speak the tongues of the foreigners around them, but they're not talking to the people around them, and they're not witnessing to them about the greatness of the gospel. Instead, when we hear about what they're saying, they are talking directly to God and praising God. This gift that they're given like the gift of tongues that Paul talks about in Corinthians, is about an individual intimacy with God and closeness with God. But that in itself, God makes into a witness. Hmm. So their closeness with God and their happiness is interpreted as drunkenness hmm. by the people around them, even though they understand. And then it's just bizarre to me that God would give a gift of communication. But then the evangelism only happens when Peter stands up and everybody else stops talking and Peter talks in Greek. Hmm. <laughs> in the 
the gift that attracts attention, but the attention that's attracted is these are people who are close to God now. Or they're drunk. Like, like, so even the gift of communication gets misunderstood. So, <laughs> yes, well, it is communication with God. You have to be drunk to think was possible. <laughs> uh, so, in verse eleven, it says, "We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues." Then, how do you take that verse? Then, well, just that—that that they're praising God and declaring God as wonderful, and everybody hears it in their own language because God has given them. It's, it's not that they have uh, babblefish in their ears and they're hearing it in the right language, but rather um, one of the disciples was given the language of Phrygian and the people from Phrygia heard that. Okay. Um, the way that you do when somebody speaks in your language across the airport, you know, you, you hear yeah. the, 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 the talk in your language. But, but for me, Conrad, the, the kind of the because I was thinking of it differently, so often our biblical interpretation hinges on what you thought it was going to say before you read it. But when I read the words, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue, I would have said that meant like the proclamation of the gospel. And you're saying they're not preaching yet. Peter's going to preach in a minute. But right now, they're talking to God in, in an intimate way about how wonderful God is. That's different than preaching the gospel. Yes, that's right. And you'll see that no one responds to the gospel as a result of what they're doing. Yeah. Um, they respond to the gospel and they respond to the gospel by the thousands <laughs> when yeah. Peter explains it and preaches the gospel. So yes, what they're doing is praising God. And that again fits with what Paul writes about this gift of tongues in the first century in, in Corinth, um, where he says, I would rather you know, lots of people speak in tongues, but I would rather speak prophecy and a word of encouragement to the people around me than speaking in tongues because it's an individual thing. And the Corinthians loved individual things and to show off how close they were with God. It's not a gift for other people. Tongues is a gift for you. Hmm. And, and Paul says that he speaks in tongues more than any of them, but in private, hmm. not in public. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so we've got this this rhythm. They're together in Pentecost, and so are the, all these other people. We've got the, the pouring, the Spirit being poured out. In fact, the very presence and an intimacy with God being poured out on these individual tabernacle temple uh, apostles now. Uh, we get all of these people from around the world, some of them more marginal than others, and then they notice that it's Galileans who, I mean, you thought Galileans speaking uh, Greek with an accent was funny. I couldn't imagine, you know, if you're from Phrygia, hearing them speak a Galilean murder Phrygian, but you could still understand it. So, but but you've identified them as probably drunk and definitely. So this is kind of Jesus working through outsiders, even Galileans. And then Peter Peter stands up and he preaches quite quite a sermon. Uh, walk me through Peter's sermon just a little bit. What's going on? What do we need to know? What's unexpected or, or conforms with what we always knew? The great thing is that God has caused a spectacle that has all these people wondering what's going on. These people are too happy to be normal. Hmm. They, they must be drunk or something. They're euphoric for some reason. Um, and Peter first explains that that's not surprising in these days, that every Jew is expecting a day 
when God will pour out his spirit and amazing things will happen and all sorts of individuals will, will, will do things that only great prophets or great priests could do before. Mm, mm. The um, sons and daughters prophesying, the young men seeing visions, the old men dreaming dreams. The spirit will be poured out on all these people. And that is about God's presence and about a knowledge of God and an intimacy of God that that is coming. But it also precedes the, the day of the Lord when the nations will be judged and, and, and things will change. God will be in charge of everything. So he, he recalls for these Jewish people and converts to Judaism, he recalls for them that this is exactly what they believed would happen all along and that it was a sign that big things were afoot as far as God was and the, and the world was concerned. And then he tells them, reminds them about Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man accredited by God, and you saw him do miracles, and you've heard about this guy, uh, and go through his death and his resurrection. Now, there's a, a, a peculiar thing in these early speeches of Peter in Acts. It's almost easy to think that Peter is accusing the Jews, he'll say things like, you killed the author of life, but God raised him. Will you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing to the tree? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and we want to say, we're tempted to say, first of all, yeah, you were nasty. Yeah. And we're also, but we're also tempted to ask, why is he saying God raised him from the dead when we know that you know, Jesus rose from the dead. He arose. Hallelujah, he arose. And the answer is that he's being, he's talking to a very particular audience. He's talking to Jews. And he doesn't want to say, Jesus does things himself. He wants to show them that this Jesus is in line with everything they believe about Judaism mm. and is in line with God, who they are in line with. Mm. And They've made a decision, but it was too hasty a decision. They've made a decision that Jesus needed to die. God overturned that decision in the resurrection. And Peter's next line is, so what do you think now? Hmm. You used to think Jesus was worthy of death. Now God has disagreed with you. Are you going to get in line with God and with Jesus or not? And this is a very persuasive argument. Well, the the God you already worship. This is the God you know. This is the Mount Sinai God. This is the God of temple and tabernacle. You worship. This is what you, there's why you're in Jerusalem. You worship this God. And here is God's verdict on Jesus. God has made this exactly. Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now what are you going to do? And the crazy stuff that you see going on now is exactly what you should expect if we are approaching such a dramatic event as God come and Messiah come yeah. on earth. Yeah. And and what is their response? What's what, what how do they respond to Peter's message? It's verse 37 already. When the Peter when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what should we do? And that's when Peter replies, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, which is truer than Peter knows at mm. the time. 
And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You know, it's not a bad day. It's a pretty good day. <laughs> but the peculiar thing is, they're all Jews and converts to Judaism. Right. The Christian church at this point is entirely Jewish. And and even if you came from Cappadocia or the parts of Pontus or whatever, you, you, the, the, these were people that were coming because they were Jewish, identified as Jewish, and then going back there. So so right. when when Paul begins to head out on his missionary journey in the book of Acts, uh, he's going to places. Do, do you expect that some of these people have taken the word in front of him or have talked about this? How how does this scene affect the rest of the book of Acts? We're pretty sure that when Paul gets to Rome, there's a community there that he hasn't founded. And the best guess is that it's been founded by people who were these people who were visiting from hmm. Rome mentioned here, who did go back to Rome hmm. and brought the, the good news of Jesus and the Spirit with hmm. them. But, but, but Peter is not really prepared. By the time Paul does that at the end of the book, he's prepared for this. Peter isn't really prepared for the idea that Gentiles are going to come to be Christians. Hmm. And so the first time that he encounters a, a Gentile, God prepares him really carefully with a vision on the rooftop of unclean foods, unkosher foods, which stand for unkosher people. Because hmm. when Peter goes downstairs after that vision, it's the messenger from Cornelius the Centurion. And that really is the first Gentile to join the church. Peter goes to visit Cornelius, which he shouldn't do if he's keeping kosher. Cornelius can come to you, but you can't go to Corn the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter's preaching to him, is led to preach to him. But before he's done preaching, before he's got, you know, the tracts out of his hand, <laughs> Cornelius and the other Gentiles start speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter says, oh my goodness. Because Peter recognizes that they're being given the same gift that they, the apostles, the Jewish apostles were given. And that this spirit really is endorsing and being close to everyone, not just to apostles, not just to Jews, not just to priests, not just to prophets, but to the old men and the young men and to, as Peter himself had said, all who were far off. Hmm. The circumcised people, the Jewish Christians who are with Peter, are sort of objecting. And Peter sort of, when you read Acts 10 and 11, you'll see Peter almost has to defend the idea that Gentiles can become Christians. And the way that he defends it is, if, the, if God gives them the same gift that he gave us, who are we to prevent these people from being real parts of the community? The gift of tongues and the, the real message of Pentecost is one of affirmation and acceptance that these people that you are now, as a Christian, close, intimate with God. And that's a lesson the church has to learn about itself. And the church has to learn about 
the sort of hospitality theme that you've been talking about has to learn about other people, even people they don't expect mm-hmm. are now God's people. Wow, that's that's almost a lot to take in, Conrad. Um, the fact that Pentecost shows up again with Cornelius, the, this Gentile. Before that, it shows up when Philip goes to Samaria um, earlier in Acts. Samaritans, too, are hated people. And Philip goes to Samaria, and he converts the whole lot of them. And there's this peculiarity about the Spirit. Peter and John are dispatched down to Samaria to see what's going on. Up until now, the only Christians are Jews, and now they're Samaritans. They're not sure about this. So they go down to Samaria, and it's while Peter is in Samaria that the Spirit comes on to the Samaritan believers, and they speak in tongues. Hmm. And Peter says, these are really believers. And on the way back, he and John preach to other Samaritan villages, which they hadn't done on the way there. (laughs) (laughs) Spirit seals for them over and over again the idea that these people are accepted. Now, it's peculiar because in Samaria, the Spirit waits a week. In Cornelius' case, the Spirit comes upon Cornelius in a, in a moment, in an instant, before Peter's even done talking. Yeah. The question that you have to ask the book of Acts is not, what is Acts saying about the Spirit and how the Spirit operates? Does the Spirit wait a week or does the Spirit come immediately? Right. Is the Spirit like this or is the Spirit like It's not about the Spirit. The Spirit is acting about the people. Hmm. What Luke is telling the story about is about the people that look these people are accepted as well or this people group are accepted the galileans are accepted the samaritans are accepted the gentiles are accepted it's beautiful so i can see peter uh, pentecost acts 2 evidence that even Galileans can be in the kingdom, and then also Jews and converts to Judaism from around the empire are also kind of welcomed in at that point. And, and I guess if, if, you were, if you were one of the original followers of Jesus, it might seem natural or, seem natural or obvious to you that when, when Jesus says you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and, and you know the ends, the ends of the earth, that uh, it, it maybe it meant to the Jews in these places even, or, you know, I'd... Well, you know, the, the old Jewish idea is that the nations will be blessed by Judaism by coming to Jerusalem, by coming and, 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 and sitting under the king that's in Jerusalem. Hmm. But Jesus and the Spirit and the Father have a very different idea that it's going to flow out from there. Oh, right, right. And be everywhere. So, so when the Spirit shows up in the book of Acts, the Spirit shows up in different ways. The timing is different. Uh, you know, I've heard it said baptism and the coming of the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel all belong together. And in Acts, you can find them in just about any order. <laughs> but uh, the, the Spirit shows up, this unique manifestation of the Spirit shows up in Acts 2. It shows up again then with Phil, uh, when, when Peter visits the Samaritans. It shows up again when 
and that that's that's kind of bad enough and then peter goes to the these gentiles and the holy spirit does the holy spirit thing again there's there's another pentecost this is like pentecost number 3 are there any more pentecost moments in the book of acts there is and that um, that has to do with the followers of john the baptist it's surprising to us but for part of the first century john the baptist was a bigger noise than jesus and mm. was more famous than Jesus. Uh, and that's probably why we have things recorded the way we do in the Gospels, that even John the Baptist says of Jesus, he's greater than I am. Uh-uh. That would mean something to a reader because they think John the Baptist is the big noise. And oh my goodness, if he thinks someone else is great. So when Paul is traveling, one of the places Paul travels, he finds a pocket of John the Baptist followers in Asia Minor. We never would have expected that. Huh. John the Baptist, we think of as happening in, you know, in Palestine and just as a as a warm-up act for Jesus. Hmm. But instead, John the Baptist's message has traveled all the way out to Asia Minor so that when the Christian missionaries are hanging are are, are spreading out and reaching new territory, they find a pocket of John the Baptist followers who haven't heard about really Jesus or the Spirit. And Paul has to enlighten them as to what's going on. And they receive the Spirit and talk in tongues. Hmm. And Once again, it's a people group sort of question. And it's an affirmation sort of question. It is um, these people, too, are really Christians. Hmm. So... In in this conversation, then, uh, thanks thanks for walking me through this stuff. This is really fun to talk to you about. Uh, I wonder what I might imagine, what what I might expect from the Spirit, or in my life, or as as I'm following Jesus, uh, looking at the Spirit working in acts and working in different ways. What might I expect to to see in my life or in the lives of people around me? How would the Spirit work based on what we've said today? Uh, maybe even, you know, what's my next step? How, how do I figure that out from looking at Acts and the Holy Spirit? Your listeners need to know that you haven't told me to say this. Okay. But I think the first lesson that comes from this fits hand in glove with your book on delight. Hmm. The first lesson that comes from this is to not be surprised that God wants to be intimate and present with hmm. you, hmm. that he wants each of us, unworthy as I feel sometimes, unworthy as you feel sometimes, that he's saying, you are the new Mount Sinai, mm. or a Mount Sinai. You are the place where my law and my voice are manifest and heard, that you are doing my work. He delights in us. He wants to work through us. And the first message of Pentecost is the Spirit rests on us, and not just rests on us, but is willing to live inside us and make his home inside us. We are filled with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's the first lesson. But the other lesson is a lesson that you've been talking about with hospitality, I think, big time. That you need to be prepared that that, that level of connection with God will become visible sometimes in places that you least expect it. And you need to be more open than some of the first Christians were to see it in these unexpected places. Thanks, Conrad. Thanks for that summary, and, and thank you for being with us today. Uh, I think I think I would like to close us in prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Yes. 
Come Holy Spirit and take up your residence. Make, make your home in us. Give us the very presence of the Almighty God. Make us little Sinai's, places where the, the new covenant is being written even now on our hearts, where the giving of the law and the, the new relationship, that we're new relationship people, beginning with me, Lord. Let me see that intimate connection that I have with God because of the presence of the Spirit and what Jesus has done in my life. And then please shape the eyes of Jesus in me that I might see other places where the presence of the Spirit is making real changes, sometimes where I least expect it. Keep my eyes and ears open for what you're doing out there in the world, uh, out there in my life, in my neighborhood, in my workplace. Will you please, Holy Spirit, show me a little bit of what you're up to, what Jesus is doing, so I can rejoice and delight in that as well. Come Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Comrade, it's always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. That was Conrad Gempf, author of Jesus Asked What He Wanted to Know and Liking Paul Again, among other books, and Lecture of New Testament at the London School of Theology. Conrad has been a friend of Next Step Press from the beginning, and I'll make sure to link to the Next Step podcast episodes where he appeared previously. I'll also link to his books, and to our book, Come Holy Spirit, A Daily Discipleship Travelogue for Easter to Pentecost. If you're interested in doing this book as a congregational sermon series or Bible study, you can email innovation at findmynextstep.org for bulk book prices. This entire season five of the Next Step podcast has been made possible in part by the generous support of Next Step patrons. If you'd like to be a Theophilus for Next Step Press and help us produce content that helps others delight in taking a small next step following Jesus, then please check out the link in the description of this podcast. Or if you'd like to make a one-time gift, you can email justin at findmynextstep.org. This journey of the time period between Easter and Pentecost has been a real blessing to me. I hope it's strengthened your faith and opened your eyes to some, some things you hadn't seen before as well. I'm glad to leave you with this final thought from Conrad, that those tongues of flame on Pentecost indicate that you, specifically and individually, are a tabernacle, a temple of the Holy Spirit, where God chooses to intimately dwell. And the joy that comes from that indwelling will become a witness to the nations. Thanks so much for being a part of this journey. We'll see you next time at Next Step Press.